A Woman Scorned, written by Felicity Radcliffe, narrated by Colette Parker, and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. My name is Diana. It means many things. Luminous, divine, fertile, perfect. Once Tom would have used those words to describe me. He chooses different words now, but I don't. I still call him my husband, not my ex. I'll never refer to him that way. Marriage is for life. Tom and I met at college. I was the clever one, whilst he was charming and streetwise, which counted for much more. He conquered the square mile and made millions, whilst I quit my publishing career after a fight with my boss. I told her I didn't need the money and went home to get pregnant. I built a gracious home for Tom and gave birth to Jonathan, our beautiful son. We both adored our child and looked forward to adding to our family. Tom loved teaching his boy to play football at weekends on the spacious lawn of our Surrey home. Nevertheless, I knew he dreamed of taking a little girl to ballet classes and I resolved to make his dream come true. One decade, two miscarriages and three rounds of IVF later, my husband called time. Apparently, I was no longer the beautiful blue stocking he had idolised in college. His city colleagues were all trading their wives in for younger models who thought they were masters of the universe. But I never imagined Tom would leave his son. I was wrong. She came along and turned his head. Suddenly, he was content to be a weekend dad. She is called Inessa. Her name means chaste, which is hardly appropriate. I would laugh. Had she not destroyed my life? A woman is every wife's nightmare. Cultish legs, full lips, tiny waist and lustrous skin. Her body fat percentage is fashionably low and her tawny mermaid tresses artfully dishevelled. When I followed my husband along Bishopsgate one evening and saw him greet her with a tender kiss, I knew my parents had given me the correct name. Diana, the goddess of hunting. I fixed my eyes on my quarry and vowed never to quit. Tom wasted no time in building a new life for himself and Inessa, right on my doorstep. He blew his bonus on a large house just a few miles away from our family home in Surrey, where I still live. This allowed him to remain part of our social circle, and the number of invitations on my notice board declined sharply. People I had considered good friends apparently preferred to spend time with traitorous Tom and his vile floozy than with me, a woman scorned. So I cut them out of my life. I don't miss them. 
My husband's adultery moulded me into a different creature. But it was Jonathan who broke my heart. You see, my son liked Inessa. He knew how much I hurt, yet he returned from his access visits with cheery tales of the fun they had together. When I looked at his phone and found their WhatsApp group and the photographs of them laughing, hugging and playing, my resolve deepened. I would not lose my son to that woman. She had to go. I followed Inessa everywhere. It wasn't difficult. She didn't work and spent her work days floating blithely between the gym and various restaurants and cafes. Gradually, a pattern emerged. Her gym sessions were regular as clockwork and every Thursday afternoon she would drive up to Box Hill for a hike. One sunny afternoon I watched from the undergrowth as she sat on a bench, swigged from her water bottle and took in the stunning views over the Surrey countryside. I realised then that I had my quarry in my sights. The online car mechanics course was described as self-paced and my chosen speed was lightning fast. I blitzed through it in two weeks, then bought the necessary tools. When I checked the weather forecast for the following Thursday, I saw that heavy rain was predicted. Perfect. I didn't follow Inessa that day. There was no need. By then, I knew exactly when she would pull into the car park. As I engaged a low gear and began the steep, twisting climb to the top of Box Hill, I knew that she should already have left her vehicle and embarked on her hike. I hoped the rain hadn't put her off, but I needn't have worried. Inessa didn't keep a figure like hers by reneging on her exercise commitments. I sighed with relief as I saw her car, rain-drenched and unoccupied. There were few other cars in the car park and no sign of their owners. I donned my surgical gloves and wriggled under Inessa's car. I had committed to memory the diagram showing where the brake pipes were located. For a moment I hesitated, then smiled as I cut them. As I emerged, I heard voices. Walkers were approaching. I had planned to put the tools in my boot to be disposed of later, but there was no time. Instead, I ran uphill towards the vantage point from which I planned to observe Vanessa's precipitous descent. My hiding place was further away than I thought. I was panting by the time I arrived. As I concealed myself in the trees, my phone pinged. Hi, Mummy. Don't pick me up from chess club today. Inessa asked me to go to Box Hill Cafe, so I've skipped chess. She doesn't fancy hiking because it's wet and we like their cake. Don't be cross. Daddy will bring me home. See you later. Love, Jono. My sobs tore at my burning lungs as I flung myself downhill. 
I slipped on the sodden grass and heard a sharp crack as I fell. But a surge of adrenaline extinguished the pain and propelled me upright and onward, limping heavily. Below, the car park came into view. Two figures in hooded waterproofs climbed into Nessa's car and shut the doors, oblivious to my screams. The driver accelerated away towards the downhill switchbacks. The hunt was over. What Does She Want With A Man? Written and narrated by Tina Yates. It is very amusing and I can empathise with it totally. What Does She Want With A Man? She is noble, majestic, all-powerful as she conquers the earth with each stride. He is puny, so weak, insignificant, so why does she let him astride? Her beauty is bright like a beacon. The gloss on her hair gleams and shines. He is scrawny, bold-skinned, dull to look at. So how can he say of her, mine? She could kill him with one well-placed blow. She's no need to submit to his hands. So why does she welcome his presence? Why does she allow his demands? There's no mystery in his desire for her, wanting mastery just cause he can. But why does she stay? She's no need to. So what wants a horse with a man? Absolutely, Tina, being an absolute horse lover and an owner at one time. Thank you very much indeed. Ode to Graffham Water was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. Do enjoy. Ode to Graffham Water O shining man-made paradise that slakes a million people's thirst for which drowned fields still pay the price. The day's sublime, so I will trace your nine-mile circuit on two wheels, a gentle journey, not a race. My anti-clockwise cycling brings me to a cove where skittish birds break for the sky on frantic wings. A grim, relentless uphill grind to reach a pylon-crested hill the view makes it worthwhile, I find. Back to shore, where a sailing boat shakes its mast in the bracing air, longing for adventure afloat. Dodging day-trippers on the dam as lycra heroes overtake, barely missing an errant pram. And then it's done. Here's the cafe, here's the car park where I began. Here are the swings where children play, in paradise or made by man. Strangers at the Station, written and narrated by Helen O'Mahony and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. The crumpled letter in his hand, he stares with vacant eyes at passing fields. He knows she's gone, the message told him so. His love of many years, but secretly. So long he waited till she was free. Well, now she's free, but not for him. 
another world has claimed her. All that's left him now is emptiness, and to leave a rose upon her resting place. He's travelled far to rendezvous, and make acquaintance with her only boy, the last remaining link with joy. If he searched this young man's face, would he see her clear blue eyes and easy smile, or a stranger's blank, bewildered stare? The train is slowing now, its destination reached. A lonely figure on the platform waits. The old man holds his breath. The younger takes him by the hand, his face all wet with tears. Dad, he cries, with choking in his throat. I'm Jack. She named, she named me after you, but never found the words to let you know. She loved you till the end. The steaming train departs, and in its smoky wake, two figures in embrace, a father and his son. Colorado River, written and narrated by Jean Fairbairn, and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Colorado River, torrent of white-tipped water, froth-flecked, fast-flowing, beneath a blue painted sky, cuts tall terraces from coloured, chiselled rock, tunnels deep down into dugout valleys over centuries of time. The river slows, backs up, stops, moves on, slowly, lazily, sluggishly, forming pools of still water, inlets for long bark canoes, gathering on ledges, rock edges of blue. On the river flows, twisting, writhing, snake-like sacred silver, glass shards of sparkling shingle, washed-up treasure from the cavern city underground, where warriors who lived and died in the red sands of the desert sit cross-legged by their fires, reliving battles they once shared, eagle feathers through their hair. Sing your ancient battle songs chronicled and transcribed to memory by the dry winds which whisper in your ear to voice your dying war cries, you who fell in battle, worship now as heroes in the epics of your tribe. One by one you bring your dead to the canyon's shadow land. There you clap your hands, stamp your feet to the rhythm of your lost heartbeats. An eagle rides the air, high distant in the blue sky, while basking far below lie lizards and chameleons, colour matched to rock formations, nature's way of carving out nations, kaleidoscopic rainbow hues, layers of orange, brown and blue, horizontal stripes of black and white, red and cream, white and green, sandwiches of lettuce and luncheon meat, all-time treats, round humbug sweets, film wrapped in canyon colours. By the river, the River Colorado, dressed full in eagle's feathers, a shaman beats his drum, slowly circles round and round, and thanks the universal spirit for her gifts of water and life, which give back the beauty of colour and form to everything that's born. Wing Walker was written by Rosemary Emmett and is narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Do enjoy. The phone rang. As usual, I was in the shower. I grabbed a towel and ran to it. At the other end of the line was my long-time friend Emma, sounding quite stressed. Oh, Bella, can you possibly do me a favour? I'm sorry it's such short notice. 
Eager to find out more, I said, of course, we're old friends. We agreed a long time ago. If either of us had a problem, we'll be there to help each other. So far away and explain the problem. Well, she began, you know I'm involved in doing daring challenges for the local children's hospice. Yes, I said, drawing a deep breath, wondering what was coming next. This Saturday, I was supposed to be forming a wing walk at the local airfield for them this weekend, but I fell off my back and broke my ankle. Would you stand in for me, please? For a few seconds, I couldn't speak. Bella, Bella, are you still there? Oh, oh yes, I was just briefly trying to remember if I was free. I realise now I will be, so I will be pleased to fill in for you. Oh, that's great. I will inform them at the airfield, then get back to you regarding all the arrangements, she replied excitedly. We ended our call and I was left wondering what I had let myself in for. I had never admitted to her I was terrified of heights, and even the thought of climbing a ladder made me dizzy, but I couldn't let her down. Emma rang back later that day. It was all arranged. I was to go to the airfield the following day, where I would meet the pilot and be given instructions. I arrived at hangar number three, where three men were waiting for me. Ben and Frank introduced themselves as the aircraft engineers who were going to instruct me and secure me to the wings of the aircraft. The other man was the pilot, Billy. After a few formalities, I was shown the plane I would be using. It was very strange and flimsy looking, with double wings and what looked like thick wire holding them together. I was informed it was a biplane. Saturday arrived and I made my way to the control tower as arranged by Ben, Frank and Billy. The aircraft was waiting. I was dressed in a special thermal suit and crush helmet. Billy was in the cockpit and Ben and Frank secured me to the metal frame attached to the wings. They assured me I would be fine as there had only been 10 fatalities in five years. That was become some stupid people decided to take a flask of coffee with them and would undo their straps or decided to have a cigarette to calm their nerves. So we lost a few pilots, exclaimed Billy. Once above the clouds, I began to feel cold. I looked down and realised I was only wearing see-through nylon pyjamas, a fancy straw hat with flowers and fluffy pink slippers. What on earth had happened to my suit and crush helmet? I banged on the wing to show my problem. When Billy saw my predicament, he clapped his hands over his eyes and immediately did a few rolls. I threw up all over the plane. There was a thud. I opened my eyes and found myself clinging to the door handle of my cupboards above my head, shouting, Help! I'm cold! I flopped onto the duvet, realising it was a dream. Concluding, I shouldn't have had cheese sandwiches for supper. Then the phone rang. Remembering Lucy was written by Alice Goulding and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Lucy was the most accident-prone person I'd ever known. And as I had been her best friend at school since we were five years old, I should know. On our first day at school, Lucy was taken to accident and emergency with a tiny piece of plastic lodged up her nose and things went downhill from there. She broke her arm at six. At eight, she nearly poisoned herself with ibuprofen tablets she mistook for Smarties. She didn't break her leg until she was 14 on a skiing trip. And over the years, she accumulated enough stitches to make a tapestry. At 18, she was admitted to A&E with suspected alcohol poisoning after celebrating her birthday in style. She got a certificate for that. Lucy. 
congratulations on making it to adulthood from the staff at A&E. Once, she almost drowned on holiday, but that had been a happy accident. She was floundering in the waves and I screamed for help when the six-foot tanned Adonis leapt into the water with his red surfboard and went to her rescue. The lifeguard fell for her, quite literally, after he rescued her. Lucy managed to trip on the sand. He lost his balance and they landed in a heap. They rolled about laughing. Six months later, Doug became her husband. On their honeymoon, she only went to hospital twice. Once after standing on a razor-sharp rock and cutting her foot, and the second, she got heat stroke after falling asleep on her sun lounger. Only Lucy could give birth on the side of the motorway. The car broke down and Doug had to get roadside assistance to alert the emergency services. The second time they were more careful. Lucy got to the hospital in plenty of time, but she was unaware that she was having twins. The second baby came as something of a surprise for Doug. Only one of her children inherited the accident-prone gene, but Lucy was now a qualified first aider. After all, she'd had plenty of experience to draw on. Ironic then that she passed away in her sleep on entering her fifth decade. Instead of the 50th birthday bash, it became her memorial wake. The funeral cottage left the funeral home to make the long drive to the cemetery with a procession of cars following slowly behind. We were three cars back when I spotted smoke. As this was Lucy's funeral, I called the fire brigade and it was a good job I did. It could only happen to Lucy. The hearse carrying her coffin burst into flames. They managed to get the coffin out, but some of the flowers got singed just as the fire brigade turned up. I thought this was supposed to be a burial, not a cremation, said my husband Terry. Lucy would have laughed. The funeral directors organised a replacement hearse and, with the help of the traffic police, we were escorted to the churchyard with no more mishaps. As we were running late, the vicar decided to shorten the service and get straight to the burial. He had one job, to celebrate the life of Lucy, to commit her body to the ground with reverence and to give thanks for the memory she gave us. With due pomp, he pronounced, let us pray to the Lord, giving thanks for the life of Louise. We all winced. The second time he called her Louise, we all shifted on her feet and looked around to see if anyone else had noticed his mistake. By the third time, it was almost funny. Terry muttered, Lucy, you complete and utter. Thankfully, he muttered the final expletive too quietly for me to make it out. But I know it was something rude and I was in unanimous agreement. The vicar got to the final line and was raising his voice to a crescendo. They are blessed indeed, saith the spirit, for they rest from their labours. Suddenly there was a gust of wind. His surplus blew up and his amen became as he belliflopped straight into the grave on top of the coffin. It was slapstick comedy gold. We gave him a round of applause and Terry shouted, Bravo, Lucy. Of course, it would just be like Lucy. As her spirit rose up to heaven, she must have given the vicar a little push on the way. Lucy dearly loved to make her friends laugh. The wake was a party, everyone outdoing each other with their description of the vicar and his fall from grace. He scrambled out of the grave looking mortified, as well he should, 
and I hoped his arrogant persona had been humbled by the experience. We will all remember Lucy as the accident-prone, fun-loving person that she was, and know that she is looking down on us with love in her heart and a smile on her face. Boy Racer was written by Sally Runham and is narrated by Roger Ems. Enjoy. Boy Racer. Zack put his foot on the accelerator to rev the engine and his own spirits, depressed at the loneliness of social isolation. The loud guttural thrust reverberated through the customised exhaust, boosting Zack's verve. An Audi rebuilt after a serious accident, his car now boasted fashionable accessories of Zack's own design and admired by fellow YouTubers in Germany. He loved his vehicle's speed, but mainly that it captivated an audience, drawn to him because of his daring and his need to show off. This lockdown was driving him stir-crazy, although he had to admit one advantage. He'd hit 150 miles an hour on a deserted stretch of the M11 last night, but with no witnesses, sadly, any bragging would be just hot air. Zach worked as an apprentice to a local engineer. He'd been laid off, but thankfully on full pay and only temporarily. The senior engineer was attempting to modify machines to make face masks and other protective gear. Then Zach would go back to work all hours to produce enough to fulfill the recently awarded government crisis contract. Zach figured he would be too exhausted to bob around the town centre on his souped-up wheels, admired by other racers. The youngsters were monitored by the police, but if they practised social distancing, they were generally left to their own devices. Some of his friends were too compliant, or even secretly scared, to venture out now, though. No mates here tonight, or were locked down. Frustrated by rules, Zack sped away but soon realised all routes were blocked by police cars. He just wanted to drive for miles to race his car foot to the floor. Swerving around a bend on his way back to oh-so-boring home, he braked suddenly. A sight more lovely even than his Audi. Jules at the Grove Court retirement bungalows. Jules was his sort of girlfriend. Nothing settled, but neither hit on other people which suited them both. Jules was on furlough from her work and would qualify for the 80% pay rate soon. Not allowed to get another job, Jules was a community volunteer and took supplies of food or medicine to people in one of the bungalows. Jules was framed against the lit hallway with the front door ajar and someone clearly fit and active was with her. Eyes for Jules only at first, Zach realised the other person was a paramedic and they were wheeling a stretcher with a patient using breathing apparatus. He pulled over to the curb and approached on foot. Getting a better angle, he looked along the footpath and over the wall to the blue flashing light of the ambulance, parked as closely as possible. 
Jules spotted Zack and beckoned him over. He dashed across the lawns towards his friend but kept his distance. The paramedic spoke. Uh, Jules said you'd be able to help. It's an emergency and we need to waive social distancing and the other rules. She indicated indoors to where her paramedic colleague had collapsed with a heart attack, she explained. She'd stabilised him, but knew both he and her coronavirus patient, already on the stretcher, needed hospital care urgently. I'll travel in the back with them both, she explained as calmly as she could. It's their only chance. The dashboard phased Zack at first, but the basic controls were familiar. He tested the accelerator, a bit sluggish compared with the Audi but he could floor it and they wouldn't have to keep stopping for giveaway signs and traffic lights. And then there was the siren announcing his passage. Look at me, it seemed to say, satisfying his need for publicity. Jules shouldn't be in the cab either. A poorly paramedic with heart failure and a courageous frontline medic trying her utmost to save lives were all the encouragement he needed to go speedily but also caringly. But there they were, a team blasting throttle and siren to receive a design award for lightweight personal protective equipment that people now wore every time they left the safety of home. He could go as fast as he liked now and whether what he was doing was legally above board, it was morally right. The police clocked the ambulance going at over a hundred miles an hour through Huntingdon Town Centre to the hospital, but took no action. They also waived prosecution for last night's speed fix along the M11, but put the scene on YouTube, pleasing Zack immensely. Funnily enough, thereafter, Zack never found speeding a fix at all, as other things mattered more. One experience produced far more adrenaline when the young engineer walked onto the stage at the Royal Albert Hall. The Cuckoo in the Nest was written by Graham Emmett and is narrated by Kevin Daly. The train drew into the station. My blood ran cold. Stay calm. Act normal. But out of the corner of my eye, I could see them walking purposefully towards me. They were unmistakable, two of them, their long, heavy black leather trench coats, matching gloves, round wireframe glasses, fedora hats and swastika emblems on the party tie. I willed the train to stop in a cloud of hissing steam and smoke, giving options for escape. For several days now I had a feeling my movements had not gone unnoticed after observing the victory march. So how did they find me? My cover of being an American journalist was always going to raise suspicions, even though America was still neutral during 1940. I had spent some time in New York as a correspondent before joining the service, which gave credence to being in Berlin. I wrote in the Tribune, This was the first time German troops had a victory parade in Berlin since 1871, goose-stepping through the Brandenburg Gate and past the Paris Platz reviewing stand. Neither Hitler or Goering were there. 
Goebbels reviewed the march past and said, This war isn't over yet. The last part must still be won. Then peace will come, and we'll build a greater Reich and a better Europe. Another piece I posted concerned the promotions of several generals to Reich marshals by Hitler after their success invading the Low Countries and France. This may have alerted them, although it could have been seen as pro-propaganda. The ceremony had been held in the Kroll Opera House on the 19th of July after a peace proposal speech directed at Britain. I could tell there was no substance to this. Churchill would never capitulate to Nazi Germany. That could wait. Escaping Gestapo interrogation was paramount or others would be compromised. What I had learned Churchill and the War Cabinet needed to know if England was to avoid an invasion by Hitler. Time was of the essence, as was escaping. Two options. One, wait until the last moment before boarding, hoping I would not be seen. Or, two, be seen getting on the train and then slip back onto the crowded platform as it leaves with the two goons still on board. That may buy me some time to get away. The planned trip was to Wilhelmshaven, where the construction of special barges for an invasion fleet was underway. It had been a request from London after interpretation of reconnaissance photographs. I was to photograph the docks and their defence using my Leica 3B that I could slip into my pocket out of sight. The train came to a stop. Luckily, with the carriage door next to me, I waited so they could see me get on, and then headed for the other end, ready to alight onto the crowded platform as it departed. Fortunately, I carried a few basic items in my reporter's leather case, so I used to disguise my appearance from such situations. Scarf, glasses, raincoat and beret, not much, but it would suffice. I had one problem, though, a hidden VHF radio in my lodgings, also maps the Germans had of the vital infrastructure in England which I needed to retrieve unseen. My disguise should get me into the house, and I could slip out the back way after dark. The old house had been in the affluent part of the city before the Depression. Now its rented rooms housed several families. My room in the attic would have been the servants' quarters, so had a stairway at the back leading to an alleyway. No one appeared to be watching the front of the house when I entered. I would be leaving from the rear under the cover of darkness, unless forced to leave because of a raid. Had one of the family workers been an informer? Suspicious of an American reporter? One of them worked for the Ministry of Information. The hall passage led to stairs at the rear, and up to my attic room. I quickly ascended, not wanting to be seen. I recovered the radio disguised as a suitcase, the aerial as a ball of string. These would pass at casual glance if stopped. Dusk came after a few nervous hours watching the street below for a raid, which thankfully did not come, well, not to this house. There had been one on the opposite side of the street. Two army trucks full of soldiers arrived who proceeded to batter the door down with their rifle butts. 
shortly followed by a young couple being dragged from the house, screaming and shouting while being beaten with batons. Not something I wanted to be on the receiving end of, and probably far worse at the hands of a Gestapo interrogator in some dingy cell if caught. Where was the nearest neutral country? Probably Switzerland, or through France to Spain, then Gibraltar, where the Royal Navy had access. This could be fraught with danger and a greater chance of capture. If I could link up with the resistance, there may be a way home. The radio. One last message to London, then get rid of it. The maps I would sew into my raincoat. The maps came at great risk from one of my contacts and insider working in the printing room of the High Command. Dusk came and I made my way out. The train was the quickest way to the border, but not from the main station. Further down the line, there would be scrutiny of documents now listed as a salesman. The false documents were good enough to get me onto the train heading west, and I made good progress until the line ended, courtesy of the RAF. Heading west, not stopping, I noticed large numbers of men, women and children of all ages being herded into the eastbound platforms. I'd heard rumours of this going on. It was evidently true. I captured it with the hidden camera. I did not know about the horrors these people were about to face or how few would survive. The rest of the journey west went relatively unchallenged. I could have stayed on the train into Vichy Free France. A message from London gave me a contact. Henri Lenay, Henry the Nose, a resistance leader. Les Cheminots, the railway workers, had started to help soldiers of the occupied countries and escapees get to England via Free France and Spain to Gibraltar. I would find him in the Hotel Florel Bar in the town of Bessinson. I was to take a room above the bar for a couple of nights on the pretext of being a salesman. Henri would be a regular at the bar, a distinguishing feature being a large nose, broken many times from boxing. There were two other escapees from POW camps, both downed RAF Spitfire pilots in the hotel. We were to make our way to Marseille via Lyon and Avignon. There, our guide, Madame Nancy Fiocca, would be waiting for us. She would accompany us to Perpignan to the tramp ship Fidelity, then to Gibraltar. Donald Darling ran the safe house. He would interrogate us before boarding a Royal Navy ship back to England. This voyage was perilous. German U-boats patrolled the Atlantic coast of France to the Straits of Gibraltar. While returning to England, the Battle of Britain had begun. I had narrowly escaped being torpedoed in the Atlantic, and now I had to contend with being bombed while travelling to London. MI9 had arranged for a car to take me there much quicker than the train, queue-jumping the checkpoints along the way and probably safer. Before reaching London, dense smoke could be seen rising from the previous night's raids by the Luftwaffe, creating havoc and mayhem everywhere. How everything had changed since I left a year ago. 
I'd experienced firsthand in France what lay in store for us if we failed to repulse Hitler's Nazi war machine. It did not bear thinking about. As we neared Whitehall and the Air Ministry, it became clear what damage the bombing was doing. Whole streets flattened, except for one building or large department stores crumbling about to collapse. UXBs, roads closed, bomb craters, plus the acrid smell of burnt-out buildings lingering in the air. The War Cabinet wanted to see what I'd smuggled out, including my evidence of Hitler's ultimate solution. Present at the meeting were Churchill, Attlee, Eden, and Chief of Staff General Hastings, who were shocked at the detailed information the Germans had on our infrastructure. One last meeting. I was to see the head of my section, a new man up from Cambridge, Kim Philby. He had recently been recruited to the service while I was in Germany, and I knew nothing about him. There was something odd about Philby. I could not put my finger on it. I just felt uneasy in the same room as him. I expected to get some answers from him. Who had betrayed my cover in Berlin? None were forthcoming. Lavender Tea was written and is narrated by Andrea Weeding. Do enjoy. Happily humming honeybee, singing songs of lavender tea. Where is your home? How far did you roam to get your food from flowers we've grown? Waggle your tail and flap your wings and do the dance that happiness brings. Show your friends the daisies and lavender, hebes, hollyhocks and sweet lemon balm. Sup your family on this rich nectar and gather pollen for your honey farm. Harvest the garden with all of your might, but don't forget on your homeward flight, happily, sleepily humming we be. Please would you make some honey for me.